If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Support for Green Dreamer comes from our listener patrons, people like you. If it's inspired you, if you're learning a lot from it, if it's become a part of your routine and you'd like to see this independent show continue into 2020, you can support Green Dreamer starting at just $2 per month by going to greendreamer.com support. And thank you so much if you're already a patron of Green Dreamer. If you look at all the great movements, the social justice movements, the civil rights movements, they were all anchored in culture. They were anchored in the arts. It was what gathered people together. It's what solidified them. And it's what also helped to bring about change. That was Dr. Mustafa Santiago Ali, a thought leader, strategist, policymaker, and activist who's committed to the fight for environmental justice and economic equity. He actually worked at the United States Environmental Protection Agency for 24 years, leading environmental justice efforts there. And in 2017, he resigned from the EPA to join the Hip Hop Caucus, a nonprofit linking culture and policy to make our movements for a just, sustainable, and prosperous world bigger, more diverse, and more powerful. Stay tuned as we're about to explore what the EPA has succeeded in doing or has fallen short of doing in the past decade, the vital connection between hip-hop, culture, and sustainability, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. Well, I came out of a family that, that had a strong connection to the land. You know, I grew up in a rural background, mostly in Appalachia and then a little bit in Michigan. My father was a big hunter and fisherman, grew up around farmers, grew up around coal miners, you know, a number of different folks who, when they weren't working, they had a strong connection to conservation and to the land. That was a part of it. Spent time in Brazil as well and, and seeing some of the natural wonders, but also some of the impacts that were happening. And the connection just was my parents had always instilled in us that we should make sure that we were taking care of Mother Earth. And 
I came to social justice work when I was 16. That's when I first really started working on it in an official capacity. And that became environmental justice, environmental equity, environmental racism. So I've just been really, really super blessed to have so many strong mentors, role models, and folks who just understood the value of, um, you know, taking care of this blessing that we have. Mm. What do you think was one of the biggest light bulb moments you had when you first connected the dots between social justice and the environment that you feel like most other people may not have been aware of? Mm. I mean, there were so many, you know, walking through favelas and seeing sort of the differences between those who have and those who don't. And when you are one of the folks who don't, you know, everything from clean water to wastewater infrastructure and and the impacts health-wise to folks, to seeing what was happening in West Virginia from some of the mines and, you know, some of the pollution that was coming out of the mines, not even yet focusing on the impact from like coal-fired power plants and that type of stuff, just water quality. We used to see fish kills all the time. You would have orange and brown water that people would tell you, oh, there's nothing wrong with it. In my small community, we had toxic metals in our water and we got our water from a spring and some people had wells. And, you know, if you looked out, you know, very idyllic, almost Norman Rockwell sort of scenery. But when you began to strip away from that, there was just these crazy impacts that were happening to folks and all that stuff sort of helped to anchor me and why we need to work on these issues, why we need to build strong partnerships, why we need to help folks to understand these impacts, but also that there's a better way. And there's a way that we can do this work. There's a way that we can protect Mother Earth and still create jobs. I feel like in in the realm of politics, healthcare is talked about a lot, but we don't talk enough about what gets people sick in the first place. And what really stood out to me there is that oftentimes the people who suffer the mo- most from environmental pollution have the least financial resources to then pay for their medical bills when they get sick from these environmental concerns. I mean, you raise a, an incredible point. We separate so many things in our lives, in our country, in our communities. We compartmentalize stuff instead of really taking a holistic approach. I mean, it gets scary, I guess, sometimes for folks. You know, we've got 100 to 200,000 people who are dying prematurely every year from air pollution in our country. Mm. And unfortunately, that's a lot of the folks are folks of color. They're lower income or lower wealth communities than their indigenous folks, those who are often unseen and unheard. We create these sacrifice zones where we put everything that we don't want into those communities who least have power or perceive power. And being able to push back and being able to influence the political process or the development of policy or the enforcement of policies or statutes or actions. And and unfortunately, you know, one, we shouldn't be creating it. But when we do, it's, you know, folks who have done the least in the sense of creating pollution, the toxic soups, those are the ones who get all this stuff. And, you know, you can travel around the country and you can see it time and time and time and time again. And folks are now beginning to pay more attention to these health impacts. It's interesting. And, you know, I worked on Capitol Hill for a couple of years. Folks really don't get how tied pollution is to people's lives, to how long people are going to live. You know, they say your zip code is determinant of how long you will live. You can literally have 
a city or a town and folks could be just a few miles from each other and you'll have people living for you know 10 years, 8 years, 7 years longer just literally a stone's throw away and that's because we put everything on the other side of the tracks and you have all these cancers and kidney and liver disease and oh I mean this is a laundry list of things and what many politicians don't share is that you know we are going to end up spending a tremendous additional amount of money on healthcare because of environmental and climate impacts. It's definitely all connected. And I would also assume that the children who grow up in these marginalized communities that are more impacted by pollution may be affected in terms of their academic performance as well, which will later go on to affect their entire professional lives later on. Oh, that's exactly right. I mean, it's amazing the research and the studies that now come out. When I first started working on these issues, you know, it was very sparse in the amount of actual scientific research to be able to, you know, back up some things. So a lot of folks were dealing with, you know, what they saw, what they felt without the science is what people would say. Now, even though there was, you know, traditional environmental knowledge and there was the knowledge of people's experiences, we needed to also sync that up with the hard science. Mm. And, you know, now uh, almost on a monthly basis, we'll use air pollution as an example. You know, we see study after study that comes out that talks about dementia, that talks about because of exposures to uh, air pollution, kids having a more difficult time in learning, you know, of asthma. We got uh, 25 million folks in this country who have asthma, 7 million kids, and disproportionately it's African-American Latino children who are the ones who are going to the emergency rooms and the ones who are losing their lives. So if you have asthma, it's really difficult if you're focusing on trying to breathe to actually sit in a classroom and learn. And especially if your classroom is next to facilities or next to a roadway where you're getting all the particulate matter that's, you know, exacerbating these asthma attacks. And then, of course, lead. Everybody knows what happened in Flint, but people forget that we have 3000 locations that have higher levels of lead in those communities than Flint did at its highest point. And it makes it extremely difficult to learn. It lowers IQ points. It puts you in a very difficult situation where you might end up making some bad choices because in our country, you know, it's very competitive. So it's no longer just about having a high school degree. Now you have to have a college degree just to compete. So if you can't even learn, their odds are that it'll be difficult for you to graduate from high school without a number of other things being introduced to help you to learn. And we know many of the School systems are challenged right now with funding, so many of them don't have the additional resources to help buffer and to support young people who maybe have been exposed. So then you may end up looking for other ways of making money and you might get caught up in a bad system or a bad situation, and then that creates a whole new set of challenges. Mm. Um, So if we invest early in one, in making sure that these types of things don't exist or at least are minimized and making sure that daycare centers and schools are not located close to these types of emitting facilities, that's a step in the right direction. But we have to move toward a a green, clean economy if we're serious about making sure that we are minimizing these impacts that are happening to children all across our country. 
You worked for the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency for 24 years, serving as the Assistant Associate Administrator for Environmental Justice and also Senior Advisor for Environmental Justice and Community Revitalization. The EPA's primary reason for being is, of course, to protect human and environmental health. In your experience, prior to this current administration having heads of the EPA who are pro-pollution and pro-extraction, through your years there, in what ways do you think the EPA has been successful in serving its mission, and in what ways has it been falling short? Well, I think that every administration could have done more and done better. Doesn't matter if they were Democrat or Republican. I think everyone could have done better. I mean, there have been advances, at least up until this administration, in engagement and public participation and helping to make sure that the voices of communities played a stronger role and helping to sort of identify and then hold people accountable on some of the priorities. I saw the enforcement work become more transparent over the years and began to also focus on our most vulnerable communities. In the early days, I believe it was like 1993, there was a big report that came out about enforcement actions and the lack of them inside of communities of color and in lower income communities. And, you know, that was a real slap in the face to the communities that are dealing with the majority of these impacts. And now over time, that began to change. And folks' voices also helped to sort of strengthen the work that needed to happen in that space. But there's still an incredible amount of work that needed to happen. Mm. I appreciate all of the frontline leaders and others who really in the early days began to get more engaged around Brownfields program and Superfund. And the worker training programs that were so critical and those worker training programs actually came out of recommendations from frontline communities. Most people don't know that through the National Environmental Justice Advisory Council, which was put in place to make sure that all types of different partners could come together and provide advice and recommendations to the administrator. I mean, you could go down the list of challenges in the early days and and some of the improvements in the processes coming up until before this last administration came in, stuff around monitoring and making sure that communities played a stronger role in the monitoring that was happening in their communities and where monitors were being placed. Lots of times they know where things need to go much better than, you know, some of the engineers or scientists who are doing what they think is right, but you have to include communities in that process. And then, you know, science now has become this politicized issue. And it was a struggle for years to get the agency or agencies, and we should talk about that, to better respect citizen science and what that brought to the table and to also get them to do more funding for minority serving institutions. So in lots of instances, folks would move resources to the big major universities but they would often overlook those colleges that were located in communities that were being the most impacted. Mm. You know, and there's work that still needs to happen in that space. And and I'll just share this one last piece with you that the real work around environmental injustice has to be done through a holistic lens. And I led the interagency working group and we had 17 agencies and departments and a couple of White House offices that were a part of that. And they came out of Executive Order 12898 that President Clinton signed way back in 1994. And if you are not including HUD 
and the Department of Labor and the Department of Transportation and a number of the others, then we are missing the opportunity to truly not only support these communities, but to help them to have stronger foundations underneath of them. What you were saying regarding the funding to universities and colleges reminded me that I learned from our past guest, Peggy Shepard of the nonprofit We Act for Environmental Justice, that large environmental groups usually focus on national measures of air quality and water quality and so forth to indicate improvements and successes, but that this often leaves out the environmental injustices ingrained within that picture, where while national air quality may have improved, the air in a particular community may have actually gotten worse. I'm wondering how micro does the EPA get with its work to address these disparities? And how did you lead the agency to integrate more of environmental justice into its work in the in practice? I just listened to the leaders. You know, I was blessed that many of them helped raise me. They helped uh, mentor me and, and teach me. Issues uh, are local. I mean, yes, there are national related regulations and statutes and those types of things that are in place to try and create this safety net. But unfortunately, the safety net has lots of gaps in it or holes in it. And that's why you have to, as Peggy said, be focused on these local impacts that continue to happen. That's the challenge when people get into some of these carbon trading sort of paradigms and and some of the other things that are in that space is that they create these hotspots or they exacerbate hotspots. So that's the reason why we have to be focused on the local level. And for me and my work, it was about making sure that the leaders and experts who come from a uh, grounding in environmental justice had a place at the table and that their voices could help to frame out and sort of move the actions that the agency was thinking about and considering, and then also making sure that we were periodically checking in and that there was accountability in the process. The head of the EPA is usually appointed by the president of the United States and confirmed by the Senate. We know that Scott Pruitt and now Andrew Wheeler, both appointed by the current administration, both have ties to the fossil fuel industry and either are themselves climate deniers or work with climate deniers. What is the power structure like within the EPA is and how much does it really matter who the head of the agency is with there being over 14,000 employees of the EPA who I can only assume mostly work there to actually help protect the environment? Yeah. So I would say 99% of the people who work at the agency are there because they care and they're committed and they want to help to make real change happen. But it's also important to point out that folks watch, listen, and and take lead from whoever is running the agency. So to put someone in who does not believe in the mission of the agency just doesn't make sense. It's almost nonsensical. The other unfortunate situation when you have someone like that is that the rest of the world watches what we do. So all the other folks around the planet who have their environmental agencies in place, they take lead from us. What our leaders say about climate change matters. And when they are a climate denier, that sends a signal to the rest of the world that is not as important as we all know that it is. And then the other thing that happens when you have a person who does not believe in science, who does not believe in climate change, who does not believe in strong environmental enforcement, 
it sends a message to the states as well. And many of them will then take their foot off the gas, will not enforce to the same level that they need to, will not move resources to the communities that they should be focusing upon. And then, of course, the rest of the federal family also is looking to whoever that leader is at the Environmental Protection Agency about the work that they should be doing and their connection, whether on the environmental or climate side. Mm. So when you have somebody who is a denier, when you have someone uh, who is trying to dismantle and deconstruct something that I can't even say how many people have given their lives and their time, their blood, sweat, and tears to help to create, then for me, it says something also about the oath that you took and the seriousness of it. And that if you truly love our country and want to protect it, or you don't. And seeing as it's a government agency, do we as the people have any say in what it does or uh, how much funding it gets for its work? I think we have all the say. Folks forget that these are their tax dollars that they are utilizing. And in many instances, people are using your tax dollars to pollute you and your children and future generations. So I think that folks have all the right to be pushing back, calling out, holding people accountable. That's why your vote is so important. And that's why you should also be engaging with your elected officials, both on the state and the federal level, to let them know what your expectations are, to let them know if you're happy or disappointed, and to let them know that if change does not happen, you will find someone who will better protect their communities and their families. And going deeper into this, oftentimes I feel like the resistance against having the government take more action to protect the environment, improve economic equity, and address climate change is that people think that they may have to pay more themselves in taxes to fund that work, which then leads people to often ask, how are we going to pay for this? Earlier this year at the 5th Environmental Justice and Health Disparity Symposium, you emphasized that the money already exists. It's about our priorities. Can you expand upon this and shed some light on where do these financial resources lie at the moment and why is our current tax and rebate system setting us, the people, up for failure when we're talking about air and water pollution and environmental justice? Yeah, so, you know, I was blessed to work on appropriations on Capitol Hill. And during that process, I got to really have a much greater understanding about the resources that do exist, where we move resources, how do we pri- what do we prioritize, and also investments and how they can yield really positive scenarios or how they can create real problems for folks. So we should just have some real talk. So on a conservative side, we give about $20 billion a year to fossil fuel industry through subsidies. If we redirected that money into helping to address climate issues and to helping to revitalize vulnerable communities, we could have a number of really incredible things that could come out of that. We could also make sure that through tax incentives that we are better helping to create the businesses of the future, which will also generate additional funding And then sometimes, again, going back to one of our earlier points, people fail to realize that there is also these costs that are associated by us not moving forward. In many instances, those are in healthcare. Those are also in the fact that when you put a coal-fired power plant or a petrochemical refinery or all these other types of things, 
that people's housing values go down. They don't go up, especially in vulnerable communities. So you're extracting wealth. So we could change the paradigm of that uh, and make sure that nobody's housing value is going to go down if we put a solar farm in or if there's a wind farm or a number of different things that, that we could be utilizing to make real change happen. So the money exists. The money is there for us to do the right thing. The question is, is the will there to prioritize where the investments need to go? And earlier we talked about how we seem to be approaching everything in a very compartmentalized manner. So we have agencies focused on the environment, focused on education, focused on healthcare, where in fact we need to take a look at all of this in a more holistic manner. So with this in mind, how much collaboration is there right now between these agencies? Well, right now, under our current administration, there is very little collaboration in the form of focusing on the impacts of climate change or a new green economy or addressing the needs of vulnerable communities in a holistic way. It's just not a priority. And it's also probably seen as a hindrance to some of the industries that have been supportive of the current administration and being able to maximize profits. If you look at the last administration, we actually were pulling together a number of the different entities, you know, a number of agencies and departments to actually use a more holistic sort of framework in addressing the impacts, but also in focusing on the opportunities. And again, the beauty of people's vote is they can take a look at the current administration and they can take a look at what's happened in the past and and where we can go in the future. And, And the voter will make a decision if we educate them on what a new future can look like. You know, it's interesting that you will have folks who say you have to choose between the environment and jobs. Or if you support the environment, then you're going to lose jobs. It's all a false paradigm. It's an old playbook. They said the same thing before you and I were really, you know, around around taking lead out of gasoline. They said that the auto industry would collapse. And they used that as sort of their their marketing. And folks decided to continue to move forward and, and taking that lead out of gasoline. And not only did we help people to be healthier and more protected, at the same time, the auto industry continued to grow exponentially year after year after year. And we can go through a litany of examples of how when people are coming together and moving forward, how real change can happen. And, you know, even in that instance, it wasn't just EPA. There were a number of different agencies that had to be a part of that set of conversations and work and strategy to be able to make that happen. Everyone from folks at the Department of Labor and Department of Transportation, EPA, and and a number of others. And of course, all these incredible folks on the outside as well. So we can make the change that's necessary. We just have to decide that it's a priority. In March of 2017, you resigned from the EPA to join the Hip Hop Caucus as the Senior Vice President of Climate, Environmental Justice, and Community Revitalization. What do you see as being important about the intersection of hip hop culture and politics? And how can this connection help us to work toward the nonprofit's mission to realize a just, sustainable, and prosperous world for all? Well, culture is the game changer. Culture is the ability to bring people together to get them to lower their guard, if you will, to get people out of their silos. I mean, whether you're talking about music or movies or poetry or whatever it is that you connect to in a cultural context, 
it, it just works. And it's so incredibly important. And unfortunately, <laughs> lots of times for those who work in science or policy or, you know, some of the other things that they forget the power that exists with that. It can educate in ways and can connect with communities who maybe don't want to hear about parts per trillion or billion <laughs> or million, but they can learn what's going on through artistry. You know, great example is Common put together this incredible uh, song and video called Trouble in the Water, which actually talked about Flint, but also talked about all kinds of other things that were happening in the water context. And people connect with that. I often tease folks that, you know, I know probably some of the best scientists across the planet. And if they say something, maybe a handful of people will pay attention. But when Beyonce says something, <laughs> uh, it reaches millions instantaneously. And if we can then combine the two, those cultural influencers who have just incredible platforms and help them to be anchored in the, you know, whether it's scientific information or other type of information, and then them be able to translate that through that gift that they have now to reach folks, to build it into their content, it's a game changer. And then as people want to go deeper, we bring them into those experts who exist in those other fields, whether it's science or policy or whatever it might be. You, you got something right there. Mm. If you look at the incredible work that Chance has been doing in Chicago and across the country, I'm sorry, Chance the Rapper, around education, I mean, reaches an incredible amount of people. If you look at the work Taboo from the Black Eyed Peas when he and the Magnificent Seven did Stand Up for Standing Rock, really helping people to understand about the cultural aspect of why people were protesting and bringing attention, and also the environmental side of it, about trying to protect the water so that there wouldn't be breaches from these pipelines that run across all kinds of people's lands and could affect aquifers and those types of things. But doing it in a way through music and artistry that gets people's attention and makes them just ask the question, why is this and what can we do about it? That's power. Mm -hmm. And that's the power of culture. I think this is really powerful. I feel like culture and storytelling, these are things that speak more deeply to our emotions. They touch on our relationships, our everyday feelings. And the science and the math and statistics, those are very important. And they speak more to our logical side. And I believe I learned in psychology that we often are not rational decision makers and we make our decisions based on how we feel emotionally as opposed to logic a lot of times. So I feel like definitely bridging the two, there's definitely something there in terms of how culture can shift our society and I guess redirect this trend that we go down in a very powerful way. Yeah, culture touches our spirit and touches our soul. When that happens, it sticks with you. When you're in those quiet times, it comes back to you and, you know, it continues to whisper in your ear and it makes you need to do something. If you look at all the great movements, the social justice movements, the civil rights movements, they were all anchored in culture. They were anchored in the arts. It was what gathered people together. It's what solidified them. And it's what also helped to bring about change. I can't imagine a life without art and without culture. 
Well, in this time, it may often feel like our democracy is no longer really a democracy because the political elites who are making the key decisions for our country that also affect the rest of the world have been bought out by powerful industries. So no matter people's differences in ideologies, we have to first realize that our opinions, needs, and desires aren't really being properly represented and prioritized in office. Especially for people in vulnerable communities, there may be even a greater sense of helplessness because people don't have the immediate opportunities or financial resources to just opt out of the system or to move elsewhere. You often tell people that we're more powerful than we may realize. So in this challenging time, where do we muster up that strength from and where does our power lie in this seemingly corrupt system that seems to be working against our interests no matter the sector or industry? Well, I think there's a couple of things. One, it's our vote. We have to protect our vote. There's a reason why people continue to try and take your vote away from you. There's a reason why they put these barriers up. They close down polling stations to make it more difficult so people who may not have access to transportation have a more difficult time in getting on the other side of the city or to another district. There's a reason why they want to make sure you have two or three pieces of ID to be able to do something that should just be a natural God-given right to be able to vote. So, and your vote will determine who some of the decision makers are, although we all are decision makers. Our vote will also determine where resources go and how priorities are set. So, you know, that's one side of it. The other side of it is that we have to make a decision on how we're going to utilize our dollars. Even folks who are in low wealth communities, we all have some resources and we have to make some decisions and we have to continue to work and build with others on making better decisions about who are those entities that we are going to um, support with our dollars, both on the side of those who are champions and those who are trying to make change and good and those who are being impactful and, and don't care about our communities, but they will take our dollars. We have to make sure that we are not supporting them, whether consciously or unconsciously, with our resources. That is a part of changing the paradigm or shifting the paradigm to make sure that people understand that we have power, that we will utilize it, that we will hold them accountable. And if they're not doing the right thing, we will find somebody who does. And when folks say that they don't think that they have power, I just point out the examples just recently. And the Women's March and how men thought that a million women wouldn't come together and sisters said, oh, yeah. <laughs> and not only did they march and over a million coming together, but they took the energy back home. And then they took a look around and they said, if I can't find someone who will protect my community to help to protect my children with me, then I'll run myself. And now when you look at the state house and the federal and, and on Capitol Hill, you see a whole new set of champions to make this country better. If you look at what happened with the science march, and you know, scientists traditionally didn't come out their labs. They were in their labs, grinding, doing what they do, <laughs> but they saw that this administration was moving away from science, was trying to manipulate science, trying to silence science. So they came out and not only did they march and marching is important, but they began to fill the gaps. They shouldn't have had to fill the gaps, but they have. You know, they're working with some frontline communities to help them to better understand if they don't have the capacity in that space about some of these impacts 
about things that they should be looking out for and how to address those. That's power. If you look at Black Lives Matter, if you look at the Muslim ban, if you look at the March for Our Lives, when you have all these young people who are saying, if you won't do the right thing to protect me, then I will utilize my power to hold you accountable. And if I'm not yet of the age to vote, I soon will be, and I will remember what you did. And I will make sure that there's someone there who actually cares about what's going on. And then just recently, when you saw all the incredible young people around our climate marches and just saying, you know what, we respect and honor those elders who have been in the fight. And for those who have not been, we're here now and we're going to be here and we are going to utilize our power to make change happen. And that's why I'm positive that we can win on these issues because there are so many different folks who are coming together and who are saying that I will no longer be silent. I will no longer allow you to assume that I don't have power and I will utilize it. Well, we're currently inching closer and closer to the 2020 presidential election. Being a policymaker yourself, what will you be looking for in a candidate? And what sorts of policies do you think are most important for them to be supporting so that we can help realize that green new economy we need as soon as possible? Well, I share this with those who are running for president who are my friends and those who I don't know as well. And it doesn't matter uh, on either side of that. If I don't see you in our communities, then you should have no expectation of getting our vote. Mm. If your policies are not reflective of what people are asking for, then you should not expect to get our vote. If you don't have folks on your staff who come from these sets of experiences to make sure that you are being authentic in what you are creating and what you are saying, then you should not expect to get our vote. So for me, it's important that candidates are are working on a number of different issues in a very authentic way. And it should be from the grassroots up. They should be focusing on the impacts of climate. They should be focusing on environmental injustices and how they are going to address that. They should be focusing on what does a new clean, green economy look like that is inclusive and making sure that those communities not only have the opportunity to work through worker training programs and others to get jobs in that space. But I also want to hear about how are you helping to build the foundation so that they can actually start their own businesses in that space, which again translates into power and translates into creating anchor institutions in these communities so they don't have to worry about dirty and negative types of industries and businesses moving into that space. Let's fill them with greener, cleaner types of businesses. And let's make sure that that is happening so there's ownership in that space. I want to hear what you're going to do about education, because without education and STEM in the new economy that's being created, it's going to be much more difficult for people to you know, be able to move forward. I want to know what your steps are. What are your actions and visions to address systemic racism inside of our country? Because we can't get to any of these other things if we're not thinking critically about how we begin to get rid of the sins of the past. Mm -hmm. And and that's super critical and super important to me also. And I need to make sure that whoever the next person is, is someone who actually deserves to be in the White House, he or she, that they are actually someone who truly cares about our country. 
And to close, what would you recommend that we do as individuals to have the most positive impact and be able to support this revolution for a green new economy that puts environmental justice and economic equity at the forefront? Well, the first part is getting educated, making sure you understand what this really means and what the real opportunities are. And the other part that I always ask folks, folks, you know, I'm all over the planet all the time, you know, speaking and engaging with folks. And my thing is, are you engaged on the local level? There are organizations that can use uh, your gifts and abilities as long as they are being brought in an authentic way. And so we need to make sure that we are strengthening those because as change is coming, we need to make sure that there is representation on the local level that will be able to help to guide that and to be fully engaged in that process. Before we go into our final five, I wanted to let you know that you can now pre-order your 2020 Green Dreamer planners at greendreamer.com slash shop. They're made in California, printed on 100% recycled paper using soy-based ink, and they feature our major environmental awareness dates, weekly tips to thrive and check off, as well as ongoing gratitude, goal setting, and reflection guides to keep you grounded and inspired. I'm really stunned personally by how beautiful they turned out, and the reason I made them again this year was because so many people who got them last year specifically requested that I make them again because it had helped them so much in their lives. And my purpose here is to support you however I can. So I really hope that the planner is another way I'm able to support you throughout your coming year and beyond. Again, you can head to greendreamer.com slash shop to check out our Green Dreamer 2020 planners. For now to our final five, let's power through. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? There are so many. Let's see. Uh, Bill McKibben. I follow the work uh, of Bill and Naomi Klein and Dr. Robert Bullard. And then I'm also uh, actually reading right now The Green New Deal by Jeremy Rifkin. And then, of course, the Sunrise Movement, the work that they're doing as well. There are so many. Uh, We would be here all day. (laughs) What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? The change can and will happen. I've seen it, and I know that it can grow and expand. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? (laughs) Trying not to fly as much and trying to... um, I used to run five, six miles a day and meditate, and I'm trying to get back to that in a very anchoring way. What are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet? A number of things. One, a presidential forum on environmental justice that, God willing, will be happening in about a month now. And then also a new initiative bringing athletes, artists and entertainers together with frontline communities to be able to help uh, make change happen. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet and world at the moment? The young people. Those who have started, you know, at the same age as me or even younger, who are getting engaged, who are being so incredibly authentic, who are not making the mistakes of the past. When you see the organizations that they are pulling together, you see the rainbow that is our planet and our country and them honoring all of the various voices and experiences is just incredibly powerful And it's the way every entity in our country and our planet should look. Mm. People should know that when they enter into a space that they're being honored 
uh, and that all the various gifts that they bring are needed and necessary. And that is the 21st century paradigm for success. Well, Green Dreamer, to learn more and stay updated on Mustafa's work, you can head to www.mustafasantiagoali.com and you can also follow him on Twitter at EJ in Action or on Instagram at Mustafa Santiago Ali. I'll have all of this linked in the show notes as well that you can find at greendreamer.com to reference for later. Mustafa, if our listener would like to get involved with Hip Hop Caucus's work or to support you in any way they can attend one of your talks, what calls to action would you like to share? Just come ready to, to, to get down and <laughs> uh, make sure that from the streets to the suites that we are showing folks our power and that we're using our power in a way to help uplift all folks, but especially those who have often been unseen and unheard. Thank you so much for joining us today. Were those your final words of wisdom or what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? That you have power unless you give it away. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. To support the show, access extended content, and join our Green Dreamer network, you can head to greendreamer.com support for more information. To receive weekly solutions-driven news around ecological regeneration and intersectional sustainability, you can sign up to our free Green Dreamer Weekly Digest at greendreamer.com. And if you'd like to come say hey to let me know that you're tuning in, you can find me on Instagram at greendreamerpodcast and at Shane. Finally, as we're wrapping up here, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.